the only way you can um, create a peaceful society and and any any degree of justice is by spreading power everywhere. And so everybody has some power, and nobody has all of the power, and so everyone is a check on everyone else. It's very Madisonian in that way. And so that's why democracy works. Hey everyone, it's Jenna from the Democracy Works team. And for this week's episode, Democracy Works host Chris Beam is going to take a turn on the other side of the microphone. He traveled to Notre Dame earlier this fall to appear on With a Side of Knowledge, a podcast produced by the university provost office. Chris and host Ted Fox talk about democracy, humility, virtue, and where things are going to go as we look ahead to 2020. This episode is a cool collaboration for several reasons. Uh, One, Chris is a Notre Dame alum. I won't tell you what year he graduated. Um, Number two, Ted Fox and I have become something of podcast kindred spirits as we've gotten to know each other over the past few months. And finally, uh, Tracy and Ted McCourtney are generous supporters of both Penn State, where our show is based, and Notre Dame. So in many ways, this whole thing never would have happened without them. If you like what you hear today, you can find With a Side of Knowledge in any podcast app or at provost.nd.edu. Ted Fox does really great interviews, and I highly recommend checking out the show. Here is his interview with Chris Beam. From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge, the show that invites scholars, makers, and professionals out to brunch for an informal conversation about their work. I'm your host, Ted Fox. And if you'd like to keep up with the show in between episodes, you can find us on Twitter, and now Instagram too. In both spots, we are at with a side of pod. For our last episode of 2019, we had the chance to welcome a Notre Dame alum back to campus. His name is Chris Beam, and he is the Managing Director of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. Chris is the author or co-editor of five books, most recently Democratic Humility, Reinhold Niebuhr, Neuroscience, and America's Political Crisis, which was published by Lexington Books. Currently at work on a book called Democratic Virtues, he is also a co-host of the McCourtney Institute's Democracy Works podcast, which I can confirm is pretty outstanding. Our conversation did eventually find its way to podcasting, but on the way there, we talked about things like the nature of democracy, not to mention human beings themselves, as well as the role of ethics in a democratic society. I also asked him the one thing everyone listening to this episode could do to help make our democracy better. His answer provides some good food for thought as we head into 2020. So, Chris Beam, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be here. So, in 2015, you published a book called Democratic Humility, which draws heavily on the work of 20th century social ethicist and Christian pastor Reinhold Niebuhr, who you know, a lot of people don't often think about, was also one of America's greatest political theorists. And at one point, you include this famous observation of his, where he says, Man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible. Man's capacity for injustice makes democracy necessary. 
And I wanted to start there because those 14 words, and it's just 14 words, it's so succinct, but they contain a wealth of wisdom about us as humans and our system of government as Americans. And it's not the idyllic, as you point out, it's not a Norman Rockwell painting. What is Niebuhr telling us about the nature of democracy? Yeah, it is is great. I mean... Niebuhr could just turn a phrase, right? And every once in a while, you just come across one, and you just think, that's really good. <laughs> and it is. It's, it's, it's weighty, and it's packed. Um, so I think the, 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 the way I would start with that is just to say he's not talking about politics. He's talking about anthropology. He's talking about human beings. And as with everything in Niebuhr, it starts with the fact that he's a Christian. And his argument, what he, you know, he says that Christianity makes the most sense of the most facts. So his argument is that Christianity presents an accurate accounting of the human condition and of human beings. And so on the one hand, we are all enslaved by sin, right? We have all fallen short of the glory of God. On the other hand, we're all made in God's image and we're all children of God. So so on the one hand, we have this incredible capacity for injustice and we all are striving for power and we're all um, benighted by our own selfishness, by our own sinfulness. On the other hand, you know, there's uh, one of his commentators said, human beings are sinful, we're not evil, there's a difference. <laughs> and so in addition to this unassailable, inescapable condition of sin, we are also um, have this basic inescapable desire to do good. And, and so it's because of both of those things that are always pushing, always tugging, always in conflict, that democracy emerges as the best form of government. Um, we know that because we are all likely, or no, it's not just likely, if we have power, we will abuse it. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, that is, you know, a very Niburian phrase. And so the only way you get around that, the only way you can um, create a peaceful society in, a, in any any degree of justice is by spreading power everywhere. And so everybody has some power, and nobody has all of the power, and so everyone is a check on everyone else. It's very Madisonian in that way. And so that's why democracy works. So yeah, it's not this kind of idyllic, volkspopoli, you know, kind of idea, but it's it's also, um, I think, a, an argument that continues to not just resonate, but deals adequately and, and uh, intelligently with everything we know about and everything we're learning about how the human mind works and what we know about human nature and what we've learned through anthropology. So, I mean, I think it's a really good, smart, not too ambitious definition, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost, and when you're talking there about kind of that Madisonian idea of the power is spread out everywhere, so everyone's a check on everyone else, it's almost, there's this level two of it of which it's a, a purposeful inefficiency in some sense that it's harder to get things done precisely because 
if one person has the ability to just do it all them themselves, there's that door right there where things can go badly very quickly. Well, they will. I mean, right. I mean, they, they, it, it's just none of us are immune from this, our own will to power. And so if we have it, we're going to express it in ways that are unjust. And, um, and so, you know, if you don't have power, it's easy to think of yourself as more moral but that doesn't mean you are, right? I mean, your position, you can, you can have the moral high ground because you are the oppressed or you are the one who has been mistreated. But that doesn't make you a more moral person, right? It doesn't make you a more moral culture or moral society. If you were, if the situations were reversed, Niebuhr says, so would the injustice, right? And so... It's, there's no other way around it except for us just to check each other. Your current book project seems to me like a, a natural extension of your previous work on democratic humility, and, and it focuses on a broader set of democratic virtues. And these virtues, I'm just going to run through them quickly just to get, kind of give people context here. There's five of them. Presenting our own point of view with evidence and fair-mindedness, listening to and evaluating arguments with which you disagree, being open to criticism, being self-critical and even suspicious of our own opinions, and being open always to the possibility that we might be wrong. And I think most people can agree, or maybe would say at least that they agree, that in a vacuum, these virtues are intrinsically good things. But what makes them particularly important when we're in the context of talking about the functioning of a democracy? Right. All right. So, so... I think I know where you got the idea that those are our virtues. I think I'm, and because I called them that, but I don't think <laughs> they are exactly. Do those I, are like, like more yeah, yeah, please, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so those are like habits or ways of developing in ourselves these virtues. The virtue, I mean, virtues are, are things you know, right? Like honesty is a virtue, courage, um, and so these are um, these are ways of manifesting and practicing okay. these these intellectual virtues. But all that is to say, I mean, in a democracy, you know, the very definition is that we the people are sovereign. We the people are in charge it's our job to decide who is going to represent us it's our job to decide who's going you know who we should vote for based on their vision of of the nation and where we should go and what's most important etc 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 so that means that all of us have to make decisions right we have to make choices we have to vote and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a free country. We don't have to, right? You don't have to do these things. You can make decisions for bad reasons. You can choose to ignore it and not make any decisions at all. But that doesn't get us off the hook, really, right? All that means is that you've, you've exercised your power badly. It doesn't mean you don't have the power. Right. So whether we like it or not, we're sovereign, right? And so if, we, if that's true, then there is you know, a responsibility that comes with that in terms of using it well. You know, you don't have to, but you have it, right? You have this power. You have this, you know, tiny little fraction of sovereignty. Right. And if you're going to use that well, then there are 
ways, practices, virtues that it can allow you or enable you better to, to, to do that well, to exercise that role correctly. And so um, once we come to recognize the kind of dispositions, features of our nature that undermine that uh, ability, that role, then the virtues are ways of pushing us to be better at it. They're, they're habits of mind, and they are in, inherently difficult, right? Um, Thomas called them circa difficilia. They're, they are difficult things. And so these intellectual virtues just move us in a way that make us better sovereigns. I guess that's, I mean, that's yeah. it in a nutshell. Yeah. I mean, if that power is all distrib- distributed to all of us, then hopefully we can exercise it in in his prudent and coherent of a way as possible. I mean, that's that's the. I mean, a virtue is always setting up an ideal, right? And you know, we're all human beings. We're not going to hit it out of the park, right? We're not gonna, you know, bat a thousand every time. I'm sorry, I'm completely mixing metaphors, <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? I do the same thing. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're not going to be always courageous or or temperate or whatever it is but the virtues give us an an ideal right it's something to that we should be assessing our behavior in terms of right and so i mean and also part of humility is knowing that you know in terms of this ideal it's something we're never going to fully measure up to right yeah right Going back to your work on Niebuhr for a minute, you also talk about how possessing democratic humility shouldn't lull us into a state of inaction or the disregard of injustice. And I'm I'm wondering, how do we help people get better at performing those, for lack of a better word, those calculations that help them distinguish between things where we can agree to disagree, so to speak, and those issues where compromise would cause someone to fundamentally betray a core belief. And it's, I mean, you even talk about this a little bit. It's those rare, they can be rare, but exceptions to the rule where having your focus be humility can become unwise and could dull you to actual instances right, of injustice. Right, 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 right. Well, actually, I think that might be the single most difficult question in ethics, and right? I, I and I, as I was thinking through it, and as I was reading, and I was thinking, okay, I want to ask him this. I was, that was in my mind, like, wow, this seems like a really difficult question it, it, it to is, answer. It is, and 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 the difficulty of that goes back all the way to Aristotle, right? I mean, he said prudence is, the, I think he says it's the king of the virtues, but whatever it is, it's it, that's the point, right? That it's not enough to know that you should be courageous. But how should you be courageous? And what's the right way to be courageous in a given set of circumstances? The example in the book is, is William Lloyd Garrison, who mm-hmm. was an abolitionist and was, um, I think most people would regard as insufferable, right? <laughs> I mean, because he just said, I, I'm not compromising on this. You know, we're talking about human beings owning other human beings. And and the degree to which that is a moral scandal is one that I am not going to compromise with. And so he called the Constitution a pact with the devil because it, w- it, it, it was a compromise on this question, right? Mm-hmm. And he said there cannot be any compromise. And so the point is, 
he was absolutely right. 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 And 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 so how do you make that judgment? And how do you decide the only way these 13 colonies are going to become a free and independent and democratic state is if we compromise on this moral obscenity. So how do you weigh that, right? How do you, and, and, and there, you know, you, saw, you see this even now in the New York Times 1619 study, right? Is, is it correct to say that without slavery there is no, or that slavery is at the core of what America is? Or is there something beyond, something noble that um, rises from the midst of this moral obscenity that is genuinely good and, and, um, and a, ch- a human achievement? And, you know, the, the, the truth is probably in the middle. It's in the middle, right? And so how do, you, how do you figure out, given the fact that all this is, is unknown, what's the right, way, right, right thing to do? And consider that we're having this incredible moral debate and, and moral conundrum around something that happened in 1619, right? right. And so anything that is happening in the future our inability to assess sufficiently to be really sure about our decision is literally impossible right it's it's right. so right. i mean and so for niebuhr the only way out of that is faith right you're not judged on whether you got it right you're judged on whether or not you did the best you could in the circumstances that were available to you. And um, you have to trust that that's enough and that, that you cannot check out, right? I mean, he would say the one thing, one option we don't have is to say, well, this is too hard, I'm done, right? Um, but you can, you can, we're going to fail. We're going to make wrong decisions. and. If you just accept that that's a possibility and just do the best you can, that's, that's as good as it's going to get, right? That's, that's ethics. And that's why it's so, so incredibly difficult. I actually, I've never done this. I've got to tell you this story. I've never done this, but I want to. The movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but there's, uh, Doris Day has this incredibly difficult moral decision because on the one hand this guy she knows this guy's going to be shot on the other hand her child has been kidnapped and the people who are responsible for one thing are the people who did the other thing and she knows that if she says something it might cause her child you know to to suffer and die and so it's just her face for minutes, it's Hitchcock, right? It's a great movie. Um, Doris Day and Jimmy Stewart, it's, it's worth a rent. But anyway, um, it's just her face, and it's just this agony. Yeah. So, and, and so my point is, that's ethics. <laughs> that's, why, that's why it's a thing, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Hey, just taking a quick break to tell you about another podcast from Notre Dame we're pretty sure you're going to enjoy. It's called Notre Dame Stories and hosted by our friend Andy Fuller. 
It features interviews with Notre Dame faculty making headlines, as well as stories about the life and work of the university. It's even won a Platinum Award from the Association of Marketing and Communications Professionals. You can find Notre Dame stories wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. I think it does touch on and speak to the role of colleges and universities mm-hmm. and what we like mm-hmm. to think colleges and universities do. And, and you talk about th- that list of things that I I, I read right, through right, that right, were right, how right, they right. manifest, right. that they're, they're intellectual virtues as well, and that they're things that employers value in the people that they hire beyond just, do you know how to do X, but can you think critically? Right. Can you evaluate alternatives and things like that? And so- to, especially to those of us who work at universities, we think, oh, well, that's a natural, that's a natural fit for a university to do. It should mm-hmm. be these should be things that they're cultivating in their students. But as as you point out in your work, that's nowhere near a universal opinion no, right now. No, so no. I'm wondering what what are some of the other factors at play here, and how would how would you respond to those? Well, all right. So we are in a world, uh, in a society that is. Um, hyperpolarized, hyperpartisan, right? I mean, I think most people listening will have noticed that, right? And so there are some people who think the idea of educating for citizenship, educating for this idea, taking on this role as sovereign, is just impossible without tilting the field towards, you know, what most people would consider the left, right? And, and, and so there's data... The, a graph that I've shown where literally since 2015 for Republicans, their um, idea that higher education is good for society has flipped, where you now have um, the majority by 20 points saying it's not. It's not a good thing. And it's not the idea of higher education. It's the idea that higher education inevitably turns people into lefties and that there's this kind of notion of leftist politics out there that is anti-free speech, right? I mean, there's, you know, there are examples um, in colleges where people were shouted down or were actually kind of accosted or were forced out of their job because they had a position or a point of view that was anathema to their point of view, right? right? Mm -hmm. And I think they're right to see that as... um, You're talking about the Republicans that are looking at that saying, no, this is wrong. I think that is wrong. I think that is wrong. I think they wildly overstate the degree to that to, to which that is operative in in um, in higher education there are examples but I don't think they're they're nearly as as uh, regular or as chronic as they say it is and um, if higher education is working the way it should that these intellectual virtues are not merely a byproduct or, you know, a nice add-on to learning how to code or to how to be an accountant or an engineer or whatever. It, it is essential to why being a college graduate is valuable, right? So I also show this graph of different majors and, and the earning potential of that major over time. 
right? And so, you know, you look at, they have philosophy majors. And, you know, I came, when I was at Notre Dame, I was a PLS major, right? And so it was not like people were knocking down my door saying, come work for me, you know? And and for Pete, I mean, if, you know, I was going to say, well, well, yeah, yeah. If you're not familiar with Notre Dame, PLS, Program Liberal Studies, liberal not in the political sense, kind of this broad liberal arts sense, it's what we call our great books program. You read read a lot of great books. And, you know, you're... You know, it's seminars. So you have to develop the ability to articulate your point of view on the fly. And you have to develop your ability to assess other people's arguments on the fly. And, and you have to write, and you have to be able to assess these very difficult, some of them very difficult books, right? And so all I'm saying is, over time, those skills emerge as being valuable, marketable. And so over time, it takes a while, like 15 years, the earning potential of a philosophy major equals those of a business major or, or you know, somebody else who's having some kind of direct route to a profession. And it's, and it's only because no matter what profession you're in, all things being equal, somebody who can do those things, assess an argument, listen carefully, have an argument without it becoming uncivil or, or right. unproductive, all those things are make you a better employee than the people than the same person with the same professional skills who doesn't have that ability. And so it is it is a mistake for people to think that college is just this transactional thing where you pay us money you continue to jump through hoops okay you've jumped through enough hoops here's your piece of paper go go and go go crazy right right and 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 so i think that those who who are only interested in a profession uh i mean fine if that's what you want to go to college for i'm not going to argue with you but you are you're making a mistake if you're not aware of and go out to seek the opportunities to develop the skills these intellectual skills because they're they're just as much a part of um you creating a marketable personage right. as as these other skills right. speaking of trying to help people think deeply and think through things and I that's what I know in doing this show that hopefully we contribute to that you with Michael Berkman who's the director of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and with Jenna Spinelli you host the Democracy Works podcast Mm -hmm. so we have we have something in common right right right. and and I really I love the format that you guys do Democracy Works in because you kind of have this little bit of an opening cross chat at right. the beginning and about then, the theme about the theme and then you do an actual interview with a guest a, right. a scholar whoever it might be and then you and Michael come back then again at the end and you kind of process what you just listened to right. and what the listeners just look because I know a lot of times Jenna does the interview and, she, she, and almost she always, always right. and so then you're kind of processing like oh what you know what did you think of that how did that strike <laughs> you what about this point point? <laughs> and I think it's it, it's cool even just kind of then in real time so to speak than to hear two people to react two people who really are in the weeds on whatever's been talked about to say like oh this is what i thought of those ideas and that's an interesting point or or whatever else well i have to i mean i have to tell you this story 
So Jenna, I mean, first of all, Jenna is, I mean, our interviewer. I mean, she's not, she doesn't have any background in political science. She actually came from journalism in Penn State. And, um, and so she is the perfect person to do the interview, right? Because she represents the, our audience. And, and so her questions are a kind of college educated person's questions. But we started the idea because uh, the three of us got in the, in the car and drove to DC for this event. And we got back, and you know, Jenna said, "We're doing a podcast." And we're like, "Why?" Because you just guys just sit and argue with each other for three and a half hours. I'm like, "All I got to do is put a microphone in front of you," and it's true. I mean, you know, we're we're very similar. We respect each other, like each other, but it's also that we just come from different places and have, you know, he's a he's a social scientist, this quant guy, and I'm theory. I'm you know way up here, and so we we bring our point of view to whatever we're talking about, and we never agree 100%, right? And so, and, and, and we've had a couple of people say, oh, I love it when you disagree, right? Because it's like, that's where you really get the differences out. But, but so, Jenna does oh, all of the work, and we're so incredibly lucky to have her. And so, by the time you got a PhD, bloviating, you know, is on your job description, right? <laughs> and so, it's not hard. And so, we just sit there and talk, and, and sometimes we, we got this literal hairball and we're saying here you go Jenna and she has to edit this into something that makes us sound a lot smarter than we are but it's you know what do you take away from that right and so the other thing that we were thinking of is that something like meet the press right or one of those shows on Sunday morning the person who's they're getting interviewed always has an agenda always has something they're trying to present which which may or may not be directly connected to the truth and then the people come on, the, 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 the uh, press people, and they don't have that same agenda. And so they can kind of say, well, I thought that's... And so I thought that was a good model, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, people we bring on, I mean, some of them I just stand in awe. I mean, we had this guy from Syria who was literally one of the people who was taking these handheld phone videos of what was going on in Syria literally putting his life in danger and not just that he was going to die he was going to be tortured and then killed and and you know just to say this is part of the works of democracy right this is this is these are examples of people who are doing the work that's necessary to sustain this way of life way of organizing the society that is inherently difficult even unnatural in a lot of ways right and and so the idea is that it's not war it's the it's democracy works is like a ship works or an iron works where you know this crap comes in in the beginning and it goes through this incredible maze of processes with hundreds of people all doing their part and a ship comes out or a locomotive comes out right, right. Yeah. and so you know it's like that's the that's the metaphor, right? Anyway, so um, so yeah, I, I you know it, it's always you're always kind of trying to tweak or whatever, but it's it's a model that I think you know serves our mission, and that's why we do it. So I wanted to end on what maybe another I don't know probably not as difficult a question as the ethics question, but and let's hope not. <laughs> Someone listening to this right now. Is there one thing that you could say, yes, you individual citizen, go do this. This will help make our democracy better. That's, a, that's an interesting question. You just accepting 
the reality that democracy is hard, right? I mean, we actually had this um, this uh, really interesting columnist, and, and now she's written a book, Lauren Duca, who said um, when she was on campus, we think democracy is a self-cleaning litter box, and it's not, right? So that's one thing, just to acknowledge that there's nothing, it's not like we just set the clock and it goes, right? We all are invested in making this thing work. So, I mean, that would be one thing. The other thing is that in, in, the, in the book, Democratic Humility, I talk about, you know, what are the things that we should be teaching in civic ed? And I could just go on for, you don't have enough tape. There's, you're going to need a new <laughs> SIM card, That's right? right? That's right. Because uh, we just do a terrible job of it. But, but one of the things that uh, I talk about is strategy is, is um, consider the opposite, right? Because we're all biased, because we can, uh, our, our, our emotions often overwhelm the part of our brain that can just kind of think of this. And because we can't escape our bias, all we can do is mitigate the effects, right? One strategy for doing that is just to stop and, and try to create or try to understand, all right, this person is thinking this and this is what they're thinking. This is their argument. Make the argument first. Make it as well as you can and then say why you think it's wrong or assess it. But it is a good intellectual and democratic discipline to just do that because it, it A, it makes you more aware, more attuned to the fact that your opponent is not evil, right? They have a point of view and it's thoughtful. And they may very well be wrong, but it's worth you thinking, trying to think how they're approaching this issue, just because it's humanizing, right? But it also is a good thing for you, for any, all of us, to just think about what exactly is at stake in this argument? Why do I come down where I come down? Why do, this, uh, why do these other people think I'm wrong? And is there a way that thinking about their argument makes my argument better or, or more accurate, more in, you know, uh, commensurate with the reality of the situation. Anyway, I think that if, if people just did that, you know, every once in a while when, a, when an issue comes up, I mean, it doesn't matter, a global warming, uh, opioid crisis, gun control, right? Just to think, person who doesn't think this, what are they thinking? And try to make their argument as well as you can. I just think that's a good tool for us to make our democracy better. Chris Beam, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Me too. Thank you for being here and, and, and having the conversation with me early on a Sunday morning. Yeah, early, 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 early. <laughs> That's right. But, but, but we, we both pulled it into the station <laughs> and lived to tell the tale. Yeah. No law enforcement. It's <laughs> That's great. right. So, it's perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Appreciate it. With the Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast.